0: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, how is Donald Trump changing the American presidency? President Trump took office on a promise to be the greatest. I can be the most presidential person ever, other than possibly the great Abe Lincoln, all right? But I can be the most presidential person, but I may not be able to do the job nearly as well if I do that. But he also promised to be a new sort of president, the first never to have previously held elected or military office and with a very different style to Honest Abe. But what makes a great president and how is the current commander in chief changing what it means to hold that office? My guest today is well acquainted with the demands of the presidency. Doris Kearns Goodwin started her career as a young White House fellow under Lyndon Johnson. Since then, her biographies of presidents from Abraham Lincoln to John F. Kennedy have won a raft of prizes, including a Pulitzer for history. Her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, tries to distill the essence of greatness from just four of these men, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Baines Johnson, her guys, as she affectionately knows them. Doris Kearns Goodwin, welcome to The Economist Asks. I am very glad to be with The Economist Asks and with you. <laughs> well, it's lovely to see you. And your guys, your four guys, came from very different backgrounds, very different circumstances. Lincoln came from that one-room log cabin we all know about. Johnson starts out as a teacher are there essential commonalities or character traits in presidents?
1: Yeah, I think there are. There's no master recipe for leadership, but they do seem to share a number of traits. First, they had developed an ambition to go into public life. You know, Each one found what the philosopher William James has said, that voice within that says, this is the real me. And they found it early on. I mean, Lincoln, when he ran for office the first time at 23, Teddy Roosevelt at 23, FDR at 28, and Lyndon Johnson, I think, from the time he was two years old. And I think most importantly, even though some of them started public life with an ambition for self to just rise through the system and make a mark for themselves, eventually something happened that triggered their desire to have an ambition for a greater good. And then there's a whole bunch of human traits that Mm. they shared. What are they? Humility, the ability to acknowledge errors and learn from your mistakes, Empathy, the capacity to feel what other people are feeling and to understand different kinds of people's points of view. Resilience, to be able to get through loss and trials of fire and come through stronger at the other end. Um, Courage to make risky decisions when it may impact your own political future but is good for the country. They all were able to communicate with stories. Interestingly, they were all storytellers, not facts and figure tellers, and were able to communicate directly to the people. And there's a sense of being able to control most of the time their negative emotions. So you just look at those traits, and that's what allows you to grow in office, which is something absolutely essential. You bring whatever talents you have and your experience into it, but you have to keep growing through your experiences. And if you've got humility
0: and empathy in particular, you're able to do that. Well, let's talk about a president who isn't well known for those traits, although there are other traits you've mentioned that perhaps one could apply to to Donald Trump. To what extent is he a challenge to any kind of model that someone like you who's written from a sort of small progressive perspective about presidencies finds just difficult? Does he just disturb the model?
1: He does make the model more difficult. There's no question. I mean, one must give him credit for having strategically figured out in his campaign that he could appeal to a large group of people in the country who felt that they hadn't been served well by the system, who felt angry at their lack of progress in the middle class, that their own manufacturing jobs had been taken away, who were aware that perhaps There were reasons for this, and he made them feel the scapegoat reasons in immigration. And somehow he made them feel, most importantly, that he was on their side. And that is an important part of a leader. Um, Whether or not he's actually on their sides and whether he's actually been able to do anything for them is another question. But when you look at the other qualities— the ability to grow in office, I keep waiting for that moment to happen when there's certain things that happens. When he won the election, you would think, oh my God, he's president of the United States. Now he can appeal to all the people, not simply the base of people. And yet in that inaugural address, he didn't reach out with optimism, which most of my guys would have done, nor to reach out to the other side. Most of his trips around the country are simply stoking the base rather than expanding the base. And then you think about humility and the ability to acknowledge errors and learn from mistakes even after the midterm elections. Again, I kept imagining, okay, now he's lost something and maybe he will learn from it. And yet somehow the president doesn't seem to process loss, Um, even though he's had losses in his own life with his brother dying and then his bankruptcies. He said the very, very best temperament that he had, which would make him the best president, was because he always won and he never lost. And all my guys lost and came through that.
0: But you've already pre-selected your guys, hadn't you? To what extent do you accept that that is a a challenge because you had already decided what you thought were good presidential qualities and they had them and they have them in an interesting mix, which is why it's so interesting to, to read your comparisons of them. I don't know if you were aware of the, this is a fallacy called the one true Scotsman fallacy. Do you know about it? No, tell me, but I okay. suspect it's going to be right. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know if it's right, but it's a, I think it's an interesting challenge to, to this kind of story, which is no true Scotsman ever goes out without a kilt. And then you meet a Scotsman who isn't wearing a kilt. You say, you're not a true Scotsman. (laughs) Uh, I wondered whether this sort of description of of Trump as the outlier, he doesn't do all these things that good presidents are supposed to do, doesn't risk falling into that. I I agree with you. I mean, the reason I
1: chose the four guys was because those were the ones I knew the best. And I used to feel when I finished each book that I wanted to find a new person to write about. And it takes me six or seven years to write these books. So I'm already pre-selecting that I don't want to write about somebody unless I totally feel a sense of affection and respect for them. They're going to disappoint me. They're going to screw up. But at least I could never live with a Mussolini or a Stalin or Hitler. So I'm already pre-selecting who I want. And then I'm pre-selecting within that the people that I wanted to exercise leadership for. So, But on the other hand, I still think that the human qualities that show what a good leader is – are relevant, whether it's a business leader, a university leader, a teacher, any leader. And I think they can be served as an index to judge the leadership of President Trump, even though he doesn't have to lead against these four people. Although the other day he was asked about how he ranked with Abraham Lincoln and FDR and Ronald Reagan. And he said, well, I think I have an A+. plus. Um, you can't go any higher than
0: that. So that, that makes it more complicated, I think. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You've, you've also looked at what makes these... People and not others who would also aspire to high office come to power at a particular time? Do you think the times make the person or the person makes the times? I think what happens is that a crisis opens opportunities for people to
1: mobilize the country and a challenge that may make them remembered by history. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt once said if you don't have a war, you would never have known who Lincoln was. You'd never have a great general. And there's some truth to that. But on the other hand, a person has to be prepared for that opportunity when it comes. So that James Buchanan was in the presidency before Abraham Lincoln, the country was already splitting apart. You could see the dangers on the horizon and yet he escalated those dangers in the way he led and he's considered one of the worst presidents and Abraham Lincoln's considered the best president. So if you have the temperament and you have the skills and strengths that fit the time, that's fine but you can also fail. I mean Herbert Hoover was there when the depression was already at a a peak. And he wasn't able to have the temperament that knew that he had to make a change in his ideology and and the federal government had to come in and help with jobs that it couldn't be done at the local level. I'm not even sure, to be honest, that John Kennedy could have gotten the civil rights bill through that LBJ was able to get through, though he might have done better on Vietnam. So it's a combination of the times create great opportunities and great challenge that somehow make you more memorable as a leader – But unless you have the qualities that are necessary, you can also fail. James Buchanan is considered one of the worst leaders we've ever
0: had. He's at the bottom of the list. (laughs) You might have to remind some in your transatlantic audience of who James Buchanan was (laughs) and and why we don't remember him. (laughs) James Buchanan
1: was a northern president, but he was siding with the south and he got involved in the Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott, which took citizenship away from Negro Americans and slaves. And, and he was seen as somebody who made the problem of slavery and anti-slavery much worse during his time. He was there in the 1850s. There was a funny story in the paper the other day that one of the previous presidential polls finally changed it and put—it's not fair to put President Trump there yet because he's just been in there for a couple of years, but he was put at the bottom. And the story said that the Buchanan relatives were celebrating this great moment. They were no longer at the bottom. <laughs>
0: It wasn't exactly a stellar record, that one, was it? And let's look at where you think Trump fits historically. It's often compared, particularly if you're looking at sort of conservative historians, would say, well, it's maybe not so much of a leap from Ronald Reagan. It's just that Donald Trump has a more populist style. He perhaps doubles down on the base a bit more. But would you concede a president, a conservative president, who had? strengths, perhaps not always acknowledged by progressive critics? No question. I mean, I look back at
1: Ronald Reagan now, and there's, n- there's not a question that he was a strong leader, that he had optimism, that he made the country feel better about itself, that he handled the Soviet Union well. And most importantly, he created an entire generation of conservative followers. That's leadership when people follow in your example. I would think that the time that's most echoing for President Trump is the turn of the 20th century. I mean the country at the turn of the 20th century, the economy was being shaken up by the industrial revolution much as it is now by globalization and and free trade and, and the technological revolution. And There were lots of people who felt concerned about that shaking up. The working class had terrible conditions in their workforce. There was a sense that a gap had grown between the rich and the poor. There were lots of immigrants coming in from abroad. and All of that produced a populist movement at the turn of the 20th century where people felt against the elites. They felt against immigrants. They felt their way of life was changing too fast with all the inventions, the telephone and and the submarine and the telegraph and They felt a sense that this was not the America that they had grown up in. And I think Trump understood that feeling on the part of a large number of people in our country now. In the turn of the 20th century, the populism— was able to be moved into progressivism when Teddy Roosevelt got into office. And he was able to mobilize that same spirit, but without it being against the rich. He said the square deal was for the rich and the poor, the capitalist and the wage worker. So he was able to balance and and heal the divisions that had risen in the country, at least for a while. And I think the difference is we keep hoping, I think, that President Trump will move to be president of all the people, but so far has more stoked the base rather than healed the divisions.
0: Well, let's talk about his administration. That's not whether we think he's populist or whether he's stoking the base, but actually what he does day to day. One of your best known books is Team of Rivals. And I would like to ask you whether you feel that that is also something which applies with some change to this administration, but you should remind us who the Team of Rivals were. Well, the night that Lincoln was elected president, he knew he had not had the
1: experience that was necessary to govern the country in this incredibly difficult time. So he'd only had four state legislature seats, and then he had been once in the Congress. So he decided, I need my rivals around me who are more experienced than I am. So he put in these three people, Seward, Chase, and Bates, all of whom were better educated, better known, better celebrated, each one of whom thought he should have been president instead of Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) And he was asked, why are you doing this? You're going to look like a figurehead. He said, the country is in peril. These are the strongest and most able men in the country. I need them by my side. So the interesting thing is when President Trump was still a candidate before he was inaugurated, and his potential cabinet members were at hearings in the Congress, and a lot of the generals that he eventually supported, and a lot of the people disagreed with him on a number of issues. And there was a good thing. He tweeted, he said, I'm glad they're disagreeing with him. I want people to question my assumptions. And so I think he did try to bring in people who would have their own strong opinions. But then the key is you have to bring that group together as a team. And it's much harder today when the arguments they're having within themselves, they had that in the Lincoln cabinet too, but it was contained in letters that you
0: read a hundred years later. So do any of those letters remind you, and I was about to say, well, team of rivals, gosh, H.R. McMaster, Rex Tillerson, when he was still there in the administration, John Kelly, that would be a team of rivals, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the difference is,
1: even within Lincoln's cabinet, sometimes they would be arguing with themselves and with him to such a degree that he sent a memo out. And he said, it would pain me to know that these comments are getting out to the public. We have to be a family within is essentially what he's saying. So whether or not maybe it would be impossible in Lincoln's time for those things to stay secret, or maybe it's just that he had more ability to shape them and make them into a team than Trump does. But it's much harder today when the press is being leaked, all these things that X says about Y, and it becomes great
0: fodder but makes it harder to create a team. I was going to ask you about social media and social media and the press obviously being in intertwined, sometimes uh, actually competing for eyeballs or, or ears. But how much has that changed the president's relationship with the press but also with the people? I think it's made it much
1: harder in some ways. I mean it gives Trump an absolute direct connection to the people through his tweets and he was able to break through that polarized cable world and speak directly to individuals. But I think what makes it harder is that when Lincoln was president, his speeches would be printed in full in the newspapers and then they could be read and reread aloud in country homes and city homes so that his gift for language worked perfectly for him Mm -hmm. with the technology of the time. When Teddy Roosevelt comes in, The national newspapers have just come into play. So his short phrases were perfect, speak softly and carry a big stick, don't hit until you have to, and then hit hard. He even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. FDR comes in at the perfect time when the radio is there and he has that intimate voice, that conversational style of speaking that people feel he's speaking directly to them. And then you have Ronald Reagan and JFK at the time of three television networks so that they are very good on television and yet there's an agreement on the three networks pretty much about facts, even if opinions Mm -hmm. might differ. And so when Trump comes along, he's mastered the newest form of social media. The difficulty is that It's great for campaigning. It's harder for governing because then when these instant comments come out, um, they can create an atmosphere that you didn't even mean to happen or they take away from the other thing that you were talking about. Lincoln, even though he could counterpunch as well as anyone, he'd be able in those debates with Douglas and Lincoln to – argue with anybody who said anything and with immediate extemporaneous response. There's One time somebody says to him from the audience, Lincoln, you're two-faced. And his response was, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face? And yet once he became president, he hardly ever spoke extemporaneously. He prepared almost everything he said because he knew that his words mattered, that they carried weight. And that's harder today, I think, when the words you say, not only from Trump, but somebody emails something, they're out in the open and you may not have thought about it as much as you would have liked to.
0: Let's look at the record, as as well as the noise or the signal and the noise as as we're often reminded with Donald Trump are quite difficult to separate. Lots of criticism of Donald Trump's use of executive orders, but he hasn't used this power much more than other presidents. uh, Somewhere just uh, over 50 times a year compared to 307 a year for FDR. I mean, do we distort the reality of this presidency perhaps because we have overly fond memories of how humble
1: others were. I think we do. I mean, I think the atmosphere now is so highly partisan and so highly polarized that everything that he does is looked at from one lens or another. Either it's the greatest or it's the worst. And it's probably neither one of those things. So that I think probably that's true if we lived in the times of Lincoln. We forget now that when he first came in, people thought he was a fourth-rate lecturer who told funny stories and sometimes ribald stories, that he couldn't keep the union together. And it was only over time that his leadership emerged and then over real time that he became this great president. The
0: limits of power are tested differently, are they, by each president? It's often something that you come back to and you very ably make comparisons between entirely different periods and people. And it, it struck me that, that that's true of Johnson when it comes to the Vietnam War. Uh, FDR attempts to pack the Supreme Court to pass the New Deal. We hear now about the Supreme Court being allegedly manipulated. In other ways, Obama shocks a, a lot of those who voted for for him against the kind of war ticket by bombing raids on Libya and of course the Edward Snowden mass surveillance of civilians, which he, he thinks he has a good story and some of his opponents don't. What is the power that is being tested by Trump?
1: You know, I think just to go back to what you were saying, it's a really interesting point. I mean, it's it's hubris that happens to those people that you're describing. I mean. FDR had won a massive election in 1936, so he thought he had the power to answer the people's wishes, which was that the Supreme Court was making unconstitutional signature parts of his New Deal. But trying to pack the court seemed to go against the traditions of the founding fathers, and he failed extraordinarily in that. So too for Lyndon Johnson, that first 18 months of his presidency, his bipartisanship, his ability to get Republicans and Democrats was so amazing that our whole modern foundation is is filled with his laws, civil rights laws, voting rights, aid to education, Medicare, Medicaid, NPR, PBS, immigration reform, fair housing. And yet that same leader who was able to bring bipartisan support domestically, was not able to deal with the Vietnam War in any kind of reasonable way. And that lost him his power and lost him his presidency. So what is the
0: power that Donald Trump tests?
1: I think what Donald Trump is testing now is that he's been able to get the Republicans in Congress to do the things that they wanted to do, and, and perhaps he as well, the tax cut, the deregulation, the Supreme Court appointments. But he's testing a power that the public themselves in the end, are the ones that are the big, biggest check on the Congress and on the courts and on the presidency. And right now, the approval rating of Donald Trump is as is low as any president has been. And I think it's in part not because he hasn't accomplished many of the things that a lot of people feel are good, but because there has been a toxic culture created. People feel anxious. People feel the moorings are being undone, that traditions and norms are being violated. And after a while, the people will speak. I mean, they spoke— pretty strongly in the midterm elections, Um, even though he kept the Senate, which most people assumed he would given the structural balance that the Senate had, he lost pretty big in the House. And and he hasn't accepted the loss, really, in some ways, which is a problem. If he did, he might say, how can I change now so that I can reach out to the other side? And maybe he will. Maybe we'll get infrastructure. Maybe we'll get something for the Dreamers. Maybe we'll get this criminal justice reform. And I'm hoping that. I'm hoping that that will, will make the two sides come together
0: in a better way. I wonder if, if you're not reading the midterms wrong. I'm just going to give you a little flat-out challenge on that one. I mean, it, turnout was high. You could argue that it has reinvigorated the electorate. We had, as it happened a Democratic strategist, Linda Lake on a show not long ago saying, yes, Democrats took back the House. But if you look across the races, it doesn't look like the Trump machine is coming to a standstill in any way. Indeed, the takeaway might be Donald Trump is now definitely going to go on all things being equal and run again in 2020 rather than this being a great midterms. Are you sure you're not shading too much towards wishful thinking? Possibly. Possibly, I might be.
1: I mean, it's hard to predict anything when, you know, I, like everybody else, never assumed that Hillary Clinton wasn't going to win. So it makes you much more vulnerable to making predictions. I think that the most important thing that happened in the midterms, and this has nothing to do with party necessarily, is that the fact so many people came out. I mean, young people voting 500% more than in the previous midterms, more women running for election from all sorts of parts of the lives that had never been in politics before. Um, That's that's a really hopeful sign. Is
0: that thanks to Donald Trump then?
1: That possibly could be. I mean I think the interest in politics has been increased because of Donald Trump and that's a very good thing. Whether or not it produces him again or whether it produces somebody against him, when the citizens get awakened, that's when things happen in the country. I mean when I look back at the times when change happened – It was the anti-slavery movement that did it all, Lincoln said, not his leadership alone. It was the progressive movement in the cities and states long before FDR and and Teddy Roosevelt became president that allowed some of the regulations that could deal with the Industrial Revolution. And of course, it was the Civil Rights Movement that allowed LBJ to do the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Bill. So we need, I think, a political revolution in our country. Something's not working well with the system, the congressional congressional lines are being drawn, gerrymandering. There's too much money in politics. There's a sense that, as Teddy Roosevelt said, the rock of democracy will break when people in different regions and different parties and different races begin to feel themselves as the other. So somehow that's been happening long before Trump, the polarization in the country, people in the rural areas feeling cut off from the cities. People who are working class people feeling that the elites haven't handled them well. They don't have the right educational system. They haven't had mobility. Those are deep cultural problems that he hasn't created that were there. And so the question, the question will be, will a leader rise that can heal those divisions? And so far he hasn't healed them. The question will be, where does the country go in 2020 if such a leader arises?
0: We don't know who that leader will be. I must ask you about impeachment or the specter of possible impeachment Hanging over the presidency, not least because you have a a sort of a strong personal echo here. I think as a a young staffer, you wrote a a piece in the New Republic under Johnson entitled How to Dump Lyndon Johnson. (laughs) As I understand it, a call correct. for impeaching that president. <laughs> Did it, the, the aftermath put
1: you off impeaching another one? <laughs> well, no, what I meant by that was that I was hoping this was written in 1967 when I became a White House fellow and I had written an article for the New Republic with a friend of mine. And we were simply saying how to remove Lyndon Johnson from office was to create a party that would run against him in 1968. Rather wishful thinking. It would be made up of women, minorities, poor people, and uh, they would sound, go Sounds a him. bit like
0: a possible. <laughs> strategy for the Democrats on the left. Do you recognize
1: that? I do indeed. But I think that in some ways, I think it would be a big mistake for impeachment to start. I mean, the Democrats have to know that whatever Mueller comes up with, the Senate will not go along with the impeachment. And I think it's much better to just educate the people, let them feel and change their mind about him. Suppose Mueller comes up with obstruction of justice or even collusion, then you just let the people absorb that information. It would be a big mistake for them to move in an impeachment direction. It'll just fire the base of Trump and then he will be able to say this is a witch hunt. So that I think they should just keep their heads down. They should do their investigations, but they should try and get as much done as they can, even if it contributes to the benefit of the Republicans to get some of these things passed. It'll be good for the country.
0: So that's a bit of a changing your thinking over 50 years, strangely. I think you
1: become a little bit more practical. But no, even then, I was wanting them to unelect him, not necessarily
0: impeach him. (laughs) Fair point. So just a closing thought from you, what kind of presidency, regardless of who runs or gets elected, but what kind of presidency do you think will result from Donald Trump having been in the White House?
1: Well, the question will be, um, does the next president have to have that kind of celebrity entertainment value so that he becomes a figure who's part of your lives. I mean in some ways if I thought about who could come back now that could most challenge President Trump, it would be Teddy Roosevelt because he was a person who people would follow him when he was on stage as he was in center stage. I mean they said about him he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. He he hungered for that center stage as Trump does and there's something charismatic about that. People are drawn to that. It's like a kid drawn to a circus. And the question will be, do we need that person today in our social media, our entertainment world? Or could it be... The Oprah presidency. That's correct. How would you feel about that? Well, I think not only Oprah, but now there's all sorts of sports stars and, and movie stars that think, oh, I can become president if this person became president without political experience. I think it's a problem to get into public life without political experience, or at least leadership experience. I mean, I can see a big businessman who's really led hundreds of thousands of people in a company overseas, coming in and having had the experience of building a team and all those human qualities. But to just pop in from some other field where you haven't been a leader, but you've simply been a celebrity, I think would be a problem if that's the
0: lesson taken from this. Doris Cairns Goodwin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And we want to know what you think. Does what made for presidential greatness for Abraham Lincoln no longer serve the national interest. How is Donald Trump changing what it means to be America's leader? Write to us, radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.